Gracious God, we have come to be with you, to sit under your word. So we pray that the words of my mouth and all the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing, uh, delightful to you, would be connective to you, that we would once again uh, get in touch with the true treasure that you have for us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, the scripture passages are very familiar, um, but combining them together is sort of an, at least for me, it's sort of an interesting reading. So here first, uh, this passage from the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Israel. Now he's talking to all of the nobility who would be around the temple, the movers and shakers in society. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. What on earth, to me, is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who on earth asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies that are just filled with falseness. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them, weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I'm not going to listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Now, it doesn't say this in the scriptural text, but my guess is that the audience for the prophet is miffed at this point. I could probably say that more strongly, but you get the idea. And so, the prophet says, come, let's argue it out. Engage. Don't just hide behind your hurt feelings. Come now, let's argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, 
they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, if you disengage, then you will be devoured by the sword what the nobility feared the most at that time. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's our Old Testament passage juxtaposed with our New Testament passage that begins with Jesus saying, Do not be afraid, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sounds like a completely opposite message. And then Jesus says, because of this, sell your possessions and give all. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Be dressed already for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. The master will come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them, will blessed be those slaves. But know this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would, not let have ha he would not have let his house be broken into. So also you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. So as I read those passages, what jumps out to you? Is it reassurance or is it fear? I'd like to, I wish I was rich enough to give you all like a monitor like this that would constantly monitor your skin temperature and blood pressure so that I could see in the reading of those scriptures what's really going on. Because those scriptures are filled with unbelievable hope, but in the context of real life, real responsibilities. I think isn't that what all of us want in the faith, is we want hope, and yet we don't want to have to get that hope by believing in a fairy tale. We want that in the very midst of our lives that are dangerous, our lives that are often filled with fear. And Isaiah and Jesus deliver. They are realists. And so let's hold this together today. Audrey West says, there is so much to fear. Terrorism, 
war, the economy, global warming, unemployment, if the recession really comes, right? Hunger, poverty, homelessness, disease and death. It is impossible to escape. Walk the neighborhoods, drive the interstates, see all the signs around you. If you prefer, stay at home. Where newscasters proclaim the bad news all day long from their studio sets. And if that wasn't enough, you have text crawling on the bottom of the page, right, of the screen, shouting out, danger. Information flashes at us from our web browsers. We receive spam emails that announce that we're doomed if we don't take action or buy the right products immediately. If we were not afraid before, we're certainly encouraged by the media and our culture to be afraid now. Into that fear, across centuries of human experience, Jesus' teaching that we read this morning, offers an extraordinary word of comfort in an increasingly threatening world. Let me read that comfort one more time. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, if we really heard that, and I had a heart monitor on you, we'd all be like, but I can see your faces. Even behind masks, I can see your faces. And we're on edge. We choose fear and not faith. We choose the yellow suitcase and not the red. And out of that, we often create a religion that just nurtures that fear. And I think that's what Isaiah is talking to the nobles about. In this passage, God actually says, who on earth came up with this idea of sacrifice? Which is strange, because if we read the biblical text, we sort of want to say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Moses, wasn't this commanded to Moses and Aaron? But if we read a little bit more carefully, the first sacrifices in Genesis are just automatically given by human beings without any asking whatsoever from God. It's a human idea, a response to the divine. What happens with Moses and Aaron is really clamping down on what that sacrifice can be. It's sort of like if your kids have to watch TV, picking the shows that they watch, when you would actually prefer that they read a book. God doesn't want sacrifice. 
we came up with sacrifice. Why on earth would we do that? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of the burnt rams, the fat of fed beasts. This is weird language for us, right? We don't understand. Just think barbecue. Think barbecue. I went to the Spokane Indians game last night. I had a barbecue sandwich. It was awesome. It was huge. I've never eaten something so big in my life. I've had enough of this, says God. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you appear before me, who on earth asked this? Well, if you're cynical, who ate the sacrifices? So who asked this? And who made sure that you brought the best stuff to eat and, you know, not that stuff that's been in the refrigerator for six weeks? So we can recognize, in some ways, the human impulse to approach religion as a way to somehow confront our fear and our anxiety but probably to avoid faith. What's so amazing to me about sacrifice in the ancient world, and so much of this is correcting the understanding that I brought to something like sacrifice, is that even if you had sheep and goats, you did not eat them in the ancient world. The only possible time that you would actually eat meat was at a big sacrificial thing that the priest ran, and then eventually you got some of the potluck. That the tax value of the sacrificial system, right, we're talking about a 15% minimum corporate tax, that's been out in the news, okay, the tax value for the normal person is about 75%. And you just think, why did people put up with this? It's a good question, right? Well, this is a type of religion that human beings create to respond to fear and avoid faith. And it raises the question, how often in our lives will we do that exact same thing? Will we create something responding to fear and yet doing so avoiding faith? Sacrifice is based on this idea that if I, if we, give God the best, and look at this other definition of sacrifice that's secondary that comes in. Sacrifice originally just simply means gift. But do you know how sometimes gift also means how much I gave to give you this gift, and there's the sacrifice? That's the secondary meaning, right? This idea is if we give God the best, surely then, quid pro quo, God will give to us. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We often run our personal lives according to those relationships, but in the end, it's very manipulative, and it often doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, we become bitter and angry. Rabbi David Wolf, who's the senior rabbi of the Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, he, he's a big deal in Jewish circles. He's among the 50 
uh, most influential Jews in the world, not by Time Magazine, but by the Jerusalem Post, says this. Remember that the giver, so for Isaiah, the sacrificer, is the controller. The one who gives always has a handle on the situation. The one who says, this is what I will give, and this is how I will give it, is always in control. More than that, the giver is the one to whom the receiver at least should feel indebted. The giver can feel good about himself because not only is he in a position to give, but as being the giver, he's on the moral high ground. I've heard sermons, I hope I haven't given them, that have gone sort of like this. Because of the great gift that we have received in Jesus Christ, we ought then to... I don't think Jesus likes those. Because that undercuts grace. Right? There's not an ought response to grace. I think, honestly, I hope I'm not telling tales on my comrades in robes, but I think we get to the aughts when we're afraid of running the whole religious complex. But grace and faith are the real good news when we are confronted by existential fear. And there's no ought in either one of those. Uh, Rabbi David goes on, all too often it is the giver who determines the needs of the receiver. Well, isn't that the Isaiah passage? Let's see, God's really big. Okay, let's kill and barbecue 20 steers or cows or whatever you do. Bunch of, can't say pork, bunch of chickens too just sort of makes sense, right? Who determined that? The priests, the chefs, the people in the kitchen. Does God ever require that? No. There are times when a gift can be an act of aggression. Here is a gift. Let me give you a gift, and let me just sort of watch. How grateful are you? How grateful are you? Have you ever, in some time in your life, received a gift, and you don't know what to do, you're sort of like, oh, thank you, I think. And then do you find yourself faking it really quickly? Okay, you're laughing. I know you do. Gifts can be an act of aggression. If someone gives you a gift and you don't want it or like it, you seem ungracious, and you pop into that dysfunctional triangle. Yet as a receiver, you did not ask for the situation, and now you're expected to pretend that it is wonderful even though you feel it is not. What does God want in Isaiah in that burning you know, rejection of the sacrificial gift? He says, wash yourselves. Get your act together. If you want to give me a gift, give me you. I want you. Take a shower. Straighten up. 
Don't hide behind a gift. Love. Engage. Move towards my heart. What I care about and what I created you for. The heart of God. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. When Jesus says this, especially in connection with being attuned to God, right? I think it's so easy to hear about the bridegroom coming and be ready. It's sort of like, oh my gosh, am I up to speed here yet? But if we hear that more, just be connected with God because all sorts of things are going to happen in and around your life that God is doing. Just pay attention to those and you will be ready. Connect and you will be ready. It's, it's a matter of attention and attunement rather than sacrifice. It's opening our worlds to God's possibilities which is full of grace, and that we accept in faith. And what this presents then, like the red bag over the yellow bag, is a lightness of being. All of a sudden, we do not carry the burden of what it means to somehow please God, but we are set free to live out of God's love for us. That's the treasure. Barbara Brown Taylor says, no one longs for what he or she already has. And yet the accumulated insight of those wise about the spiritual life suggests that the reason why so many of us cannot see the red X that marks the spot, the heart of God, why we can't see the heart of God, is because we're standing on it. It's right here. Maybe you're sitting on it. And we see it through believing it. That's how we connect to it. The treasure we seek requires no lengthy expedition, no expensive equipment, no superior aptitude, or even special company. All we lack is the willingness to imagine that we already have everything we possibly need. That God has already given each and every one of us access to his kingdom. And the only thing that is missing is our consent to be right where we are. To be right in our life where God has placed us. That is the lightness of being of grace and faith. That is the perfect love that casts out all fear. So as we move towards communion, I'm going to invite us to not think of communion as a sacrifice that is so extreme 
that it should motivate or guilt us into an extreme response of love back. I'm going to encourage us to receive this gift that perhaps we didn't even know we are deeply asking for. But it is the gift that helps us pay attention to the X that marks the spot. That it's not so much about the body broken and the blood shed, although we live in the real world where there's lots of reasons to be afraid because bodies break and blood is shed. But it is for you. For you. Remember. On the night that our Lord and Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant that is sealed in the shedding of my blood. As often as you drink this, do this remembering me, the cup of our salvation for you. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim to the world that we're realists. We don't ignore the world. It's a very dangerous place. Our Lord and Savior was crucified. But he will come again. A treasure and a kingdom is given to us. And through faith and grace, we can live into that even right now. No matter what we hear today, no matter what happens in the world today, that will never change. The gifts of God for the people of God.